Amen. Please stand now for the reading of God's Word. And this evening we come to the end of our series through the uh, prophet Haggai's message, this post-exilic prophet. And um, I'll do a little recap of the things in a moment. Let's read the last oracle here in verses 20 through 23. Give your attention to the word of God. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you we can gather as disciples at your feet to hear the teaching of your word and expounded. And Lord, as the scriptures are opened up, we pray that our hearts uh, would burn within us. You'd help us to see our Lord Jesus Christ, the sum and substance of all of scripture, and to apply our lives to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, as I said, I'll start with just sort of a uh, very quick recap of uh, what we've seen so far going through the book of Haggai. It was in the year 520 BC that this prophet delivered a series of four sermons each spread across four months. Uh, his powerful preaching served as a catalyst, igniting uh, a new generation's determination to reconstruct the temple in Jerusalem, that temple having been ravaged by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Specifically, uh, for starters, on the date of August 29th, Haggai issued a compelling challenge to the post-exilic community, uh, urging them to resume the crucial task of rebuilding the temple. Uh, this reconstruction held uh, immense significance, signifying the people's determination uh, and resolute commitment to prioritizing their devotion to God, to putting God first. The temple, as you know, stood as a symbolic representation uh, of the divine presence among them, a kind of testament to the Lord's promise to, to reside in, in the midst of his chosen covenant people. Embracing this renewed focus, the people understood that their covenant life uh, hinged upon giving paramount importance to that which assured the, and secured the divine presence. By reconstructing the temple, they aimed to honor and glorify God, inviting his blessings and favor upon them. Uh, stirred by this call to repentance, and especially this call to reorder their skewed priorities, the people of God uh, then eagerly embarked on the mission on the date of September 21st, signifying uh, their resolute commitment uh, to God's presence 
and glory and pleasure. Uh, despite their diligent efforts, the pace of progress in rebuilding that temple felt uh, frustratingly slow or sluggish, and there were concerns that the, the uh, final product would pale in comparison to the, the majestic glory of Solomon's original structure. And in response to these discouraging sentiments, on October 17th that year, Haggai delivered a powerful second sermon to uplift the spirits of the weary community. He exhorted the people to be strong and to work um, assuring them that their labors were not in vain and emphasizing that the Lord's presence was indeed with them. His spirit was in their midst. In a remarkable twist, the prophet also provided a glimpse into the eschatological future, envisioning a time when the heavens and the earth uh, would be shaken uh, by the Lord's uh, decisive uh, intervention. During this extraordinary period, the glory of the rebuilt temple, or this latter-day temple, well, would, would surpass even that of the former, and a stream of perpetual peace would uh, emanate from this sanctuary of heavenly splendor. And that's described in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Uh, as the months rolled on, December 18th marked a significant milestone, commemorating three months since Our Lord's temple was ceremoniously laid, and so we can picture um, the leaders and the people alike congregated at the sacred temple site, uh, united in an official ceremony uh, to honor this crucial achievement. And then continuing his series of sermons, Haggai then directed his focus towards the priests and the congregation in his third sermon, uh, which was last Sunday's uh, text. The prophet there posed a probing question to the priests, drawing a parallel uh, with the legal rulings that they had issued, or the verdict they had issued, and then applied that verdict to the people. The issue at hand uh, was one of ceremonial impurity, right, or uncleanness, rendering the offerings of the people unacceptable in the eyes of God. And Haggai emphasized the necessity of this uh, this personal transformation or uh, cleansing by God before their offerings could be accepted in his sight. And he underlined the significance of the date of this sermon, December 18th, as it marked a key turning point, uh, signifying a shift from past curse to future blessing. And so in this declaration of divine authority, the sovereign Lord proclaimed, from this day on, I will bless you. And now we arrive finally at the culmination of Haggai's sermons, his fourth and final one found in verses 20 through 23. It was delivered on the same day as his third sermon, the very day when the foundation of our Lord's temple was laid. Uh, with the backdrop of the anticipated harvest looming just a few months ahead, the promised era of blessedness foretold by God stood on the threshold of fulfillment. And now in this fourth final sermon, the scope of Haggai's message broadens, the vistas widen, uh, gazing toward the eventual inbreaking of the eschaton, the, the culmination of history in the end times. While the promise of God's blessing in the near future serves as a precursor, it is merely the, the initial installment, or you might say the first fruits of a far greater blessing 
to be fully realized in the age to come. And so this section has been called by commentators Haggai's eschatological epilogue. It's directed, you notice, to Zerubbabel. Um, and it, it, it presents, the section it presents the prophet as kind of a literary equivalent of an impressionist painter. Uh, with broad strokes and an absence of elaborate details, uh, Haggai employs you know, cosmic upheavals and uh, seismic disturbances and clashes of armies and chaos of adversaries to create this artistic portrayal. And as in a carefully composed picture uh, where every stroke is designed to guide the observer's gaze to a central focal point, the focus in this instance is akin to a shaft of sunlight illuminating a single item, a signet ring, gleaming on the finger of God. Zerubbabel, the designated heir to the royal throne, embodying the restoration of the Davidic covenant and its promises. <laughs> so, and then Haggai's projection into this future, his eschatology, if you will, envisions God's action, the shaking of the heavens and the earth, uh, the overthrow of earthly kingdoms, and the execution of Zerubbabel as his chosen signet ring and promising to be a savior to the people under his authority. And you know where this is going. To preface the conclusion, it becomes undeniably clear that this passage serves as a, a prophecy uh, with a direct application to Christ. Because he embodies the true reality towards which the figure of Zerubbabel was pointing, embodying the anticipations linked with the royal line of David. While Haggai sought to guide his contemporaries in anticipating Christ's coming kingdom, which they glimpsed through God's tokens, though not yet visible to their eyes, the significance of this prophecy lies in kindling hope within the hearts of the people. Haggai's intent is to encourage them to envisage greater realities beyond the scope of their earthly perceptions, beckoning them to grasp through the, through the eye of faith the forthcoming yet unseen truths that God's word promises. We could say it like this. He's, Haggai's saying to them, in effect, what you see is not all that there is. While directly addressing Zerubbabel, Haggai's final oracle here encompasses a wider audience, extending its message to the entire community. Uh, the intention was for, for everyone to heed and grasp the Lord's communication to their political leader. So who exactly was this figure named Zerubbabel? <coughs> well, he's officially titled as the governor of Judah. Zerubbabel did not have the status of a king. Judah was, as you know, under the dominion of the Persian ruler, King Darius. And Zerubbabel served as an appointed Persian representative. In the worldly context, Zerubbabel's life seemed to lack significant import. Uh, he occupied a minor role within the government hierarchy, functioning as you know, just a minor government official in this provincial backwater region of Judah within the vast Persian Empire. He lacked the trappings of a throne, of a crown, or a kingdom. His outward appearance um, held no grandeur or majesty. 
And yet, Zerubbabel possessed a distinctive quality. He, uh, there was something special about him he, because he was of royal blood, uh, tracing his ancestry back to King David. Uh, Haggai's reference to him as the son of Shealtiel underscored his genealogical tie to the royal lineage and his role as Israel's messianic, um, as sort of the, as the bearer of Israel's messianic hope. And this hope rested on the divine promise that God would establish one of David's descendants on his throne forever. Like in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we think of, right? And this unique connection places Rubabel within the genealogies of Christ, as evident in both Matthew chapter 1, where Zerubbabel is mentioned in verse 13, and Luke 3, where he's mentioned in verse 27. And Zerubbabel, as you notice, stands at the heart of this passage. It's like the, the central figure, um, serving as both the recipient of God's incredible message and as the very focal point of its intent. And the words directed to him carry a profound reassurance. God's enduring long-term plans for his people remain steadfast and unchanged, a testament to the Lord's unwavering commitment to his word and covenant. Because, you see, following the exile and the subsequent return, a crucial question arose in the hearts of the people. Despite their return to their homeland, they're wondering, could their relationship with God remain intact after all that had, had transpired? Uh, did God's care persist in the present? Uh, and did he hold a plan for their future? Now, Haggai's earlier sermons addressed the first of these inquiries, focusing on God's care for them in the present. While hints of the eschatological future emerged in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, regarding the Latter-day Temple, this into the broader scope of what lies ahead, both for the nations and for God's people, Israel. Especially noteworthy is the exploration of the future of the Davidic line. Haggai's inquiries extend beyond the immediate concerns, delving into the destiny of the Davidic lineage, offering a profound glimpse into the larger narrative that unfolds, the kind of the bigger picture, if you will. The future destiny of the nations... Um, that's skillfully depicted through here in our text through this evocative uh, and vivid imagery and, and traditional language. Verse 21, in, in, that, in, in verse 21, uh, the stirring proclamation to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, foretells a profound cosmic upheaval where the Lord says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. This declaration resonates with uh, the previous promise in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, unveiling God's intention for the latter-day temple. In that coming intervention, there will be no mere reordering or rearrangement. Instead, all that is vulnerable to shaking, removal, and dissolution shall be shaken, removed, and dissolved. And this cosmic upheaval of this final day, of that day, is destined to give way to a more glorious reality, something better still, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom, an unshakable kingdom, where God's uh, sacred temple 
and sovereign throne unite or uh, merge under the reign of a restored Davidic ruler, the long-expected Messiah. However, this transformation necessitates um, a holy war, right, to, to clear the path for this, this grand future. So as the divine warrior, the Lord will launch a holy war against the enemy nations, culminating in the overthrow of earthly kingdoms amidst cosmic convulsions of cataclysmic judgment. That's described in verse 22, you'll see. I, the Lord says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and the riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. And we'll note the deliberate lack of specificity in the language pertains to the world powers mentioned. In other words, this is purposeful because it transcends the context of just the Persian Empire. More is in view. Every authority, every principality or power that opposes the Lord and his anointed will ultimately face downfall. Any force that stands against God's divine order will eventually come to nothing. And drawing upon this sort of resonant language and imagery from Israel's past, Haggai drives home his point. He prompts his audience to recall pivotal moments when God intervened in history. Overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, the, the defeat of the Canaanites by humbling of Egypt's chariots and horsemen. And even that phrase, every one by the sword of his brother, uh, harks back to Israel's heritage of holy war, marked by the Lord causing confusion uh, among their enemies. So the prophet here, Haggai, marshals the abundant evidence of God's faithfulness throughout history to emphasize his message for the future, the coming age. In each of these past instances, God demonstrated his power to judge the wicked and to deliver his people. By drawing upon the language and imagery of the past to depict future events, Haggai is essentially saying that God's actions will be repeated. It's going to happen again. The historical accounts are not mere you know, relics. Uh, they serve as, as a paradigm of a promising tomorrow, a, a final exodus, right? A, a final conquest, a final victory, a new creation. However, as I noted, the focal point of this prophetic message centers on the figure of Zerubbabel. Um, just as, as, an, as I said, it's back to that sort of image, uh, just as a, in a carefully composed painting uh, or picture where each brushstroke guides the eyes to a central point, here too, the focus is like a shaft of sunlight highlighting a single item, a ring shining on a finger. And this symbolizes hope. It's a sign of hope for the entire community of God's people carrying an unmistakable uh, messianic uh, implications or overtones. And that's what verse 23 is really saying. On that day, 
On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'm sure most of you do know what a signet ring was, but I'll just say a few words in case you don't. I'm sure the, the kids might not know. Engraved in stone and uh, enclosed in precious metals, a signet ring served as a seal, right? leaving an impression like a signature when pressed into wax or clay. And this distinct mark authenticated documents and confirmed their validity. Worn by kings, the signet ring held special authority, endorsing you know, uh, legal documents and royal decrees. Highly prized and carefully protected, this cherished possession symbolized you know, the owner's special authority and significance. Through Haggai, the Lord communicates to Zerubbabel the promise, I will take you and make you like a personal signet ring. This proclamation would have brought immense comfort and hope to the returned exiles, as it seemed as though the covenant made with David and his descendants had been broken and, and you know, trampled underfoot. The whole Davidic enterprise seemed to be lost in the sands of time, and uh, David's descendants appeared to be cast off forever. And this idea is most, uh, uh, perhaps most graphically expressed in uh, Jeremiah chapter 22. I'm thinking of verses 24 through 26 in particular. And I think Haggai's alluding to this passage by, by using the signet ring image. In that passage in Jeremiah, the prophet issued a stern message of judgment against King Jehoiachin, a descendant of David. He boldly declared, the Lord said, even if you, Jehoiachin, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. And then subsequent verses in Jeremiah elaborate on God's rejection of Jehoiachin, leading to his exile in Babylon. And this marked a severe you know, separation from God's favor uh, as Jeremiah prophesied that none of Jehoiachin's descendants would rule on David's throne or govern Judah. And the apparent contradiction raises perplexing questions. After all, the Lord had bestowed a promise upon David long ago, assuring that his house and his kingdom would endure forever before him and that his throne would remain established forever. Did God renege on his commitment? Did he force, or had he forsaken his pledge to the people? Did, he, did this signify the end of the covenant and the demise of the kingdom? Could it be that the signet ring had been permanently removed from God's finger? And to unlock the full significance of Haggai's closing verse, it's imperative to grasp this historical backdrop. Here, God employs the same imagery, signet ring, but in reverse, you know, with a different outcome, if you will. Uh, the prior imagery, re re respecting Jehoiachin, uh, it was imagery, that imagery of, of rejection and removal undergoes a transformation illustrating the restoration and reestablishment, a revival of the Davidic line. So Rubabel emerges as a central figure identified as God's chosen signet ring. In him, the Lord invests the complete designated authority, signifying that his commands will bear the undeniable mark of divine approval and authority. 
So Haggai's final sentence, the last verse, uh, breathes hope into the future of the Davidic line. The divine selection of David and his descendants as the wellspring of hope for both Israel and the nations remains unshaken. The lineage of David has not been extinguished, upholding an enduring sense of hope for Israel's future. Zerubbabel serves as a potent emblem, embodying the timeless nature of God's commitments to David. He stands as a testament to the unwavering nature of the Davidic covenant, representing the, forthcom to, uh, representing the forthcoming generations of David's line. This lineage, unbroken for the ensuing four centuries, culminates in the arrival of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, whose coming ushers in God's redemptive kingdom, extending salvation to all who submit to his authority. While Haggai's contemporaries may have yearned for, uh, you know, the immediate overthrow of foreign domination and the restoration of Davidic rule, it becomes clear that Zerubbabel was um, not destined to fulfill this role. He actually just kind of disappears from, from history pretty soon thereafter. Haggai's proclamation anticipates a future son of David, a descendant who would one day rise to assume the mantle of kingship. He encourages his audience to patiently await the dawn of what he calls that day. That day when these promises would materialize. However, they're not simply waiting for a future without hope, a future when God might forsake his people and his anointed one. Instead, they are in a state of hopeful anticipation for God's restorative actions have, have already been set into motion, fulfilling his age-old promises. The mention of Zerubbabel by name holds great significance, signifying that God has, um, God has already renewed his interest in the Davidic line. The dawn of the future has already broken in. The future had already begun. And though the ultimate fulfillment has yet to be consummated, they are still expectantly waiting for that unspecified time in the future. They're waiting for that day when God will step in or intervene to crush his adversaries and to exalt his chosen ruler, king. Zerubbabel's presence among them, however, serves as a tangible token and pledge of this reality. Zerubbabel's trajectory points toward the ultimate reality, Jesus Christ. We fix our gaze upon the greater descendant of Zerubbabel, the embodiment of our hope. As Christians, Matthew's gospel unmistakably establishes a connection from David through Zerubbabel to Jesus, as Zerubbabel is prominently included in that genealogy, leading to the ultimate restoration of David's throne and uh, within God's people. Remember how Acts 2 in the inaugural sermon of the early church delivered by the apostle Peter um, on Pentecost, the spotlight shines on Jesus at the center as the embodiment of the Davidic hope. This hope centered on God's promise to establish a descendant of, David, descendant of David on the throne. 
And given this context, it's no wonder that Psalm 2, the second psalm, a hymn rejoicing in the enthronement or in the coronation of the Davidic rulers, frequently quoted from the Old Testament in the New. One of the most frequently quoted. The first installment of this fulfillment materialized through the death and resurrection of the greater son of Zerubbabel. Like Zerubbabel before him, this one bore no allure or splendor or majesty that would captivate human attention or others would find attractive. His earthly status didn't command admiration or honor. Instead, he humbled himself, assuming the role of a servant and descending even further to endure death on the cross, the fate reserved for those deemed accursed by God. The mystery of the cross lies in how God exercised this rule over the world through this very act. The servant song of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 52 and 53, I think kind of illuminates this truth, proclaiming there God's uh, triumph to his people through messengers bearing the good news, that good news being that our God reigns. Our God reigns. And this reign in Isaiah's vision, is established as God bears his holy arm. Isaiah, in astonishment, peers at this arm of the Lord and wonders aloud, who has believed what he has heard from us? And, who, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah's astonishment arises from witnessing a man referred to uh, as my servant and my chosen one. Enduring excruciating pain and, and dying in agony at the hands of wicked men. Was this suffering servant figure truly the Lord's anointed? He seemed undeniably burdened by God's curse, seemingly forsaken by the Father. As one writer put it on the cross, he looked more like a new Jehoiachin than a new Zerubbabel. In other words, he looked at the new Jehoiakim as the one cast off by God. Then the, one, the chosen servant of God. Remember in Luke 23, the words of the passers-by echoed their doubt, uh, skepticism. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. This perception held some truth, didn't it? As he bore God's curse and abandonment, for our sins, in our place. And yet beneath this momentary rejection by God lay an, an, an eternal, uh, unbreakable promise. God had chosen this son of David to be a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to his people. Through the self-sacrifice enacted on their behalf, God would achieve a resounding triumph, elevating his anointed as the name above every name. Just as the transgressions of past Davidic kings led to exile and devastation for their subjects, so now the righteous death of this Davidic king, who's now seated at the right hand of God, bestows life and salvation upon all who place their trust in him. That's why Psalm 2 ends saying, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Though Haggai never witnessed it, 
we are fortunate to be experiencing the first installment of its fulfillment. Living at the close of the ages, we have the Christ event with the cross, the resurrection, an empty tomb. We have the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We, we are already in possession of, of what Haggai foresaw in the future. The death and resurrection of Christ mark the beginning of the world to come. And in this moment, even now, we are allowing that world to shape and mold and govern us in our thoughts and words and deeds. There is, of course, as you know, a, a not yet to the already, of the, the already of the first installment, the not yet. In one sense, this passage has been fulfilled in the arrival of Christ and the line of David and his ascension to his heavenly throne, seated on the throne of David forever. In another sense, it remains unfulfilled as we await the final arrival of this Davidic ruler in the last days or on that day. While our era or our time in history stands worlds apart from Haggai's time, our stance, if you will, um, or outlook uh, resonates with the faith and with the anticipation of Haggai's ancient audience as we eagerly await the grand finale of God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. Like them, we too live in faith, poised for the cosmic upheaval that will uh, shatter earthly powers when the divine warrior steps onto the stage, that rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, whose name is uh, faithful and true and comes to make war. And our sights are also set on the resplendent visions of Revelation 21 and 22. New Jerusalem, the temple, the throne, they all await their climactic unveiling. So as Christians, we grasp the truth that our current reality only scratches the surface. In other words, what we see is not all that there is. Amid the struggles we navigate, we're eagerly anticipating a future brimming with hope, masterfully unveiled through Christ, the true signet ring of God's promise. Our anticipation stretches toward the impending cosmic upheaval, especially now that the awaited Zerubbabel the true son of Zerubbabel has made his entrance, confirming the age-old promise through the resurrection. Haggai's clarion call urges us, each of us, to wholeheartedly embrace this hope and this new creation hope and to unwaveringly press on in our pilgrimage, knowing that the triumphant return of Zerubbabel's greatest son our Lord Jesus Christ, the embodiment of that very hope, is the culmination we look for with eager anticipation as we are ever prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the Scriptures, for the Christ of Scripture, for the Christ who has come and has ushered in a whole new world and kingdom. 
and has changed our lives. We thank you, Lord, that we also can live in, with eager anticipation of his glorious and triumphant return. And as we live between the times, help us to persevere by faith, uh, perceiving things uh, invisible, having the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And we thank you that you know, your word and sacrament come to us and assure us of these things and help us to see by faith. And so let us also walk by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.